Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 273, and today's guest is Dr. Jorge Guzman, Associate Professor of Management at Columbia Business School. For this podcast, I typically interview founders and investors, but there are times that I like to switch things up and get a different perspective about startups and entrepreneurship. Thus, I was excited to interview Jorge as he teaches entrepreneurial strategy at Columbia Business School, and his research has been focused on entrepreneurship policy, regional entrepreneurship, and entrepreneurial strategy. He is also one of the creators of the Startup Cartography Project, which is an interactive map showcasing the quantity, quality, and performance of entrepreneurship across America. Jorge received his PhD from the Sloan School of Management at MIT and was previously a postdoc at the National Bureau of Economic Research and a lecturer at MIT Sloan. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like Jorge's thoughts on the current economic conditions and what it means for entrepreneurs, his background story and the path his career took to becoming a professor, the latest in terms of the entrepreneurial culture at Columbia Business School, including the details on the school's brand new Manhattanville campus, the expansion of entrepreneurship across lots of different regions, and does it matter to be in Silicon Valley anymore? A discussion on his research around the gender gap in entrepreneurship, common mistakes that Jorge sees entrepreneurs make over and over again, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. This week's episode is sponsored by MarketMuse, a content intelligence platform that sets the standard for content quality. Their AI-powered software enables companies to create predictably better content at scale that increases traffic and engagement, improves productivity, and drives revenue. Get more out of your content with packages starting at just $0 a month. That is free. Plus, you can get 20% off the MarketMuse standard plan by using our code FIZZ20. That's F-I-Z-Z-2-0 at checkout. Go to marketmuse.com to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Jorge. <laughs> Professor Guzman, or should I say Jorge, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Keith. Jorge, Jorge is totally fine. <laughs> no, thanks for clarifying. I didn't want to be rude throughout this whole podcast and the whole time that... <laughs> You know, talking to a professor of Columbia Business School and be rude or something. So, uh, okay. So since I have someone, you know, usually for this podcast, I talk to founders, I talk to investors, but I do like to get different points of view. So for this particular interview, I thought it would be perfect to get a point of view from a professor that's specifically focused on entrepreneurship on the current state of the economic conditions and in, in the tech industry. There's a lot of uh, you know, talk of layoffs in the media. There's a lot of talk around the venture capital uh, firms and private equity of things slowing down and just everything was overinflated, whatever the case may be. So w- what's your point of view in terms of the current state of the market? Yeah, I, that's that's a great question, Keith. I mean, I think like, uh, and thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. Um, this is, it's a little bit of a paradoxical time, um, as you're saying. First, there was a huge boom during COVID. And during COVID, one thing we, we saw was a huge increase, not just in venture capital, but in overall entrepreneurship. We have, a you know, in the kind of economics world, there's kind of starting to be some evidence that part of that is that what we call reallocation, which is in this new world, um, companies that were doing business before are not quite as well fit in some cases. Maybe the way you do yoga, maybe the way you kind of consume entertainment, et cetera. And that is actually kind of the setting for innovation, entrepreneurship, kind of bringing the world forward. And so 
notwithstanding the bad things of the pandemic, entrepreneurship was looking really well. And then, as you said, the recession came along, huge drops in, or not the kind of impending recession. Um, there was inflation, huge drops in venture capital. A lot of people that, you know, I know people that had H-1B visas and now like are leaving their companies and struggling to figure out even how to stay in the country, things like that. And, and so it's looking actually kind of a lot, a lot kind of more somber and a lot. And, you know, most VC firms are asking, are asking startups to make sure to, to reduce their spending, et cetera. Uh, my sense, there's, there's one piece, there's one piece that I think is for optimism in this space. And there's the CHIPS Act by, by, the, by the Biden administration, uh, because that's really focused on the semiconductor industry and bringing, get, bringing back some competitiveness for the U.S. and the semiconductor industry. And so that leaves us with kind of like three different things. First, I think if you're like in hard tech, you know, tough tech, they call it something around semiconductors. Um, I think you might have, you might be a little bit optimistic. If you're on software and social media, um, you know, mobile, things like that, things are looking actually, consumer, things are looking actually quite, um, quite negative relative to where we were, quite negative relative to where we were. And my hope is my hope is that a lot of that will come back in the future. I think uh, the, the, the emphasis on the recession is, is for it to happen as fast as possible and not longer, but it does seem, I would predict that it's gonna kind of stay kind of cold um, for, for maybe kind of six months to a year uh, as these things kind of reshuffle, as people are kind of coming back, you know, as there's some kind of successes that are not succeeding how we expected, um, you know, things like Peloton and, and other kind of people are coming back to old habits. Uh, and then third on health, health was doing really well in biotech, but now it's kind of more mixed as well because I think it's it's gonna get, you know, a little more serious with these, with the Inflation Reduction Act. And so there's a legal perspective, there's inflation side, and then there's, there's of course, um, you know, a lot of the interest we're seeing. This is this all comes on top, Keith. However, from a long-term increase on interest and passion for entrepreneurship. And so, you know, these are the ebbs and flows of the economy. But but entrepreneurship continues to be today like one of the kind of best things to get into, and that has only been a kind of secular kind of positive trend over time. Yeah, I mean. Economic cycles happen. Yeah. If you'll build a business that has a solid foundation of a product people are willing to spend money on, you should do just fine. And things were definitely overinflated with valuations. So I think things had to come down to earth eventually. And, and unfortunately they did. And it kind of sucks, but uh, but it is kind of what it is. So uh, hopefully, you know, things aren't uh, in, you know, things should hopefully return normal soon. Because uh, I think there's some knee-jerk reactions of, lots of companies that have a sound business that are also reacting to their investors' opinions. But uh, but we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. No, I think that's right. If you have a solid foundation, uh, just make sure not to run out of cash. Uh, and if you were betting on the next round happening in one year, and you're, that's how you're setting your milestones, just rethink that. But but I don't think there's anything about, you know, useful products are equally useful as they were a year ago. Exactly. All right, let's talk about your background. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? So what was I like as a child? Uh, um, so I grew up in Mexico, um, this area in the Northeast called uh, Monterrey, which is like sort of a, a kind of big city over there. 
Um, and I grew up as a, you know, I sort of was a pretty typical kid. Um, but I eventually um, did an undergrad in computer science at the local university there. Um, you know, and I and I was really kind of mostly a software developer through those through those years of of kind of until I was like twenty five. Um, and actually, you know, at the time when I was graduating, there happened to be big big reductions in the hiring of H one B visas, and so most tech companies in the U S. they used to hire uh, mostly people from different places, a lot of people from India at the time. And, and because these H-1B reductions came down, then there's a special visa when you're in kind of uh, Mexico or Canada through NAFTA. And that was how, you know, there's just ended up a bunch of tech companies hiring in my university that, that year. And I showed up, you know, it was really kind of very serendipitous. And I showed up in a certain science fair and I got a job at Microsoft and became a software developer there for a few years. What um, did you work on at Microsoft? Well, I, I was, I was, I worked on a, on the build process um, in the build team. So, you know, with, besides all the features, there's kind of this other team whose job is to get the, the work everybody else has done and build it into a product and then make sure that kind of is tested, et cetera. And so that was mostly my job for those few years. Uh, and I liked it. I liked software development a lot. And, and that's actually kind of, I think, how I ended up really into entrepreneurship but I realized that it was not all I wanted to do. And so I decided to do an MBA um, and, and I got to, into MIT. I decided to go uh, focus on entrepreneurship for a while there. If anybody is from, from connected to MIT, there's a thing called Delta V there right now. Uh, and yeah, it just happened about, recently. Yeah, exactly. So, so, you know, I was sort of in the first cohort of that even before it happened. Oh, you were? Oh, that's yeah, amazing. Yeah, there's a company I was launching at the time. Uh, and, and Rene Reisenberg and a series of other kind of people that have done well. And so eventually though, I, at the same time, I, I decided to work on a thesis uh, because I had this academic bent and, and I wrote a thesis on startup opportunities um, in, in kind of emerging markets and for software and things like that uh, held by, by a faculty there called Michael Cusumano. And so I was always, I was kind of stuck, you know, I really wanted to be in entrepreneurship and I really wanted to, I really enjoyed my thesis and I really wanted to be an academic. So I graduated, I decided, you know, doing a PhD would be sort of really low income for a very long time. And I have, I had a daughter and, and I just had wanted to get on with my career. So I got a job as a director of data engineering, um, of a startup. I was sort of first employee at a, at a startup, you know, we downloaded this. It it it's called Price Stats, and what we did was, you know, it was, it was sort of joint work with other MIT faculty, where that, you know, they would download prices for all companies every year, every day, and kind of track the movement of of, of different product baskets. It's been really useful right now in with inflation, and so I, I basically ran all the data operations for that for that. Um, and, and I think I would have been really happy just continuing in director of data engineering, CTO, uh, in this kind of back-end data focus. It would have been sort of a very happy career for me, but I still kept with this idea of a PhD and I eventually applied just to three schools to a PhD and, and I got into MIT again. And that's how I, I ended up um, doing more research in this case. But I'm still, I'm still not sure, Keith. I still feel like, you know, maybe I should go and start a company uh, or figure out how to do both. So what, what was the research you were focused on at, for your PhD at MIT? Right. So there, there I, I studied entrepreneurship and I got really interested in location. 
Um, so I, you know, there's, and I got interested not only in strategies of entrepreneurship and how do you build a company, but I sort of a little bit broader, like why are locations so different, right? So before we started the podcast, you and I uh, were chatting about how Boston and Philly have kind of taken really divergent paths in terms of their entrepreneurial ecosystem. And you know, if you believe entrepreneurship is kind of important for regional development and economic growth, and there's sort of a lot of evidence to show that, then you really wonder why some of these regions and ecosystems take off and others do not, right? Mm-hmm. And, and Pittsburgh, right, which was kind of doing kind of pretty bad a few years ago, that they seem to have taken off and maybe, you know, um, you know, Nashville has. And so it's really a mystery why all this is happening and how much it matters. So I spent some time um, working with, you know, initially, you know, my collaborator, who was my advisor at the time, Scott Stern. And we, you know, we did, we published some work in science trying to understand the geography of entrepreneurship, uh, what drives regional success, how does it, how does it, um, how does it develop? And, and, and we, you know, migrations across regions, what startups value, which startups create, you know, how do certain policies, taxes, et cetera. And we, we have like a few research projects, but one of them kind of more, more kind of visible is this idea called this, is this project called the Startup Cartography Project, which is um, basically we geocoded every single company, you know, legally registered company, so LLC, corporation or partnership in the United States uh, over, over a span of 25 years. And we know uh, where it was located and we came up with some measure of kind of quality, right? So some... We know that a lot of them are local shops, but a lot, but but others are like kind of like the VC type, and how do you assess that? And we came up with an approach for that. So that's that's most of the work I've been doing on the on the research side, um, which is 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 you know right now we're we're working with the NSF trying to trying to trying to work on some of these ideas as well. So hopefully it will 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 be able to impact some of these some of these places. After completing your PhD, what what did you do after that? So I could right. So I completed my PhD. Um, I like a family health health uh, problem, so I had to finish early. You know, one of my kids got really sick, and I was a lecturer, and then I was a postdoc, which are kind of these intermediary steps that sometimes you have to take, uh, just because the academic job market is really weird, Keith. It's just you know you either have to apply like the first of September, like you get it's it's sort of like a very specific time, and so you have to go to the job market conference. And meet everybody, and then you have to go to the, to the. You have to apply by say October first, and then you can get a faculty job. But if you don't apply by October first, then you have to wait until next year. And so you miss the right deadlines, then you sometimes have to figure out how to make it work. Uh, but then I went directly into these into this faculty position, and and I applied. You know, I applied and showed my research stream, etc. But one reason I ended up coming to Columbia. One reason I came to Columbia that I really like was that they were going to let me teach my own class. And I really wanted to teach a class that I teach here called entrepreneurial strategy. And so that's kind of the other thing I do besides these like location and why do ecosystems happen, et cetera, is um, I, tried to, I, stu- I, teach, I teach and study entrepreneurial strategy, which is more, how do you think about competitive advantage and like where does value come from when you're like a early stage startup? Yeah, what's the what's the vibe at Columbia these days? You know, specific to the business school, because I mean, you see how uh, you know the amount of startup activity that has really occurred at Sloan and Harvard Business School, and 
uh, Wharton, you know, so what, what's the vibe these days at, at Columbia? Oh, it's amazing. It's completely, it's completely changing. Uh, you know, we used to have in, in, um, at Columbia, we used to, you know, New York used to be a very, a very Wall Street focused, focused uh, city. And it still does a lot of that. But uh, whereas 20 years ago, about 60% of our students at Columbia would, would go into finance. Now it's more like a third. And so a big change. Wow. And all of that has yeah. been taken up by what you would broadly call tech. And so, you know, if you, so first we have students that want to be entrepreneurs. Second, there's a lot of, and this is important, I think, because there's a lot of people that were teaching entrepreneurship. It's not because they're going to launch a company tomorrow, but it's because they are doing a lot of other things where understanding these matters. For example, if you're working at a big tech company, it might be important, like if you work at the Google and Amazon, it might be important for you to understand a little bit how this works. If you're working in M&A and you might be acquiring some young companies, you might need to understand a lot of these as well. If you're working in, some of them want to get into private equity and venture capital. And, you know, there, there's a lot of kind of, you, you need to think, well, how do I kind of value companies when I cannot, when I know, right, we cannot predict kind of the evolution of these kind of cash flows, like how do I value and things like that. And so all of those kind of markets we're trying to get to, and from the Columbia side, we're just growing you know, we're, we're growing a lot. We're getting a lot of new new companies. And one thing I'm excited about is that we're starting to integrate a lot more with the engineering school. And so right now, a lot of the companies that we see have, are, have do things like, you know, in the consumer space and, you know, obviously in New York, there's a lot of marketing skills in the finance space, you know, fintech. Um, but now we're, we're, I'm also hopeful we're going to start doing a lot more in the in that from the engineering school. So a lot of more commercializing data science, you know, biomedical innovation and things like that. And I'm, that's one place where I'm really excited and hope it's really going to make a difference. And obviously they're making a tremendous investment into the, the business school with the new campus. Yeah. No, I know this is, you know, this, the, the, the new campus is really beautiful and, and it's really made, you know, we used to have to have classes in two buildings that were like a block away. And so you had to come back and go, you know, go walk between one or the other one. And it was nice there because we we're part of the bigger campus, but it is nice here because it's really made this community its own community. Uh, the, the new building has a very special feature, Keith, that I really love. And it is that um, each floor, you know, usually in the business schools or almost any university, the classrooms and the professor offices are completely separate. You know, and most of the time, actually, as a professor, you have to like walk to where the students hang out to 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 interact with them, and it doesn't come natural, right? And so you have to, you know, you have to go to the classrooms or something like that. At Columbia Business School, it is one floor faculty, one floor, one floor, one floor classrooms, one floor faculty, one floor classrooms. So even in just going into a cafeteria, going into the elevators, walking down the staircase, you bump into your students, and I think it's. I mean, for me, it's really made a difference in terms of in terms of how how often I get to connect with them and just how you know how we make like the whole kind of researching and the learning and the teaching all connected into the same into the same mission. So, for the students that are interested in entrepreneurship and are looking to start a company, what are the resources that are available for the students? Right. So that that's a that's a great uh, question. So we have a few a few things in line. Uh, first, we do have classes. We have class. I, I told you I teach entrepreneurial strategy. 
That's a little bit broader. It's not a kind of build your company kind of incubate your company kind of class, but we do have classes about that. There's one called Greenhouse uh, and Launch Your Startup, uh, which are kind of a whole year sequence about kind of setting up a company and working through things and working with classmates or team members. And you, you end up at the end of that kind of pretty well set up. That is on top of a bunch of other classes, as I mentioned, you know, we have foundations of venture capital, foundations of entrepreneurship, foundations of innovation, so three very foundational classes to kind of think about things, um, as well as kind of more, more like, you know, basic class, of course, accounting, et cetera. After you get there, after you kind of set up your company, there's a few things that, that Columbia also gives you. First, there's something called the Lang Fund, because that's, that's the name of our center here, the Lang Entrepreneurship Center. And, and they do direct funding into startups, right? $50,000 is, is, I think, the average funding. And, and $50,000 when you're starting out can make a lot of money. So we want to make sure that, like, if you're starting out, you know, the pain is not, you know, from your debt or from, like, or from these MVP things you need to do. That allows you a little bit of runway to kind of get started. So that's Pretty key. The second thing is we have the, the, in Midtown, we have a whole incubator where we give you, uh, this is at the Columbia level, not the business school, right? Where we give you office space and you can be part of a community for a year. And it's a whole accelerator that has proven quite successful and it works really well. And third, of course, we have, you know, the one thing we do have at Columbia that is really good. We have many, many things, but one thing that's particularly good is a very, very, very strong network of people in New York City and of people interested in investment in New York City. And so if you're looking for an angel investor, if you're looking somebody that's going to go that little extra kind of mile to bet on your idea, I think, you know, it takes, of course, you know, grit and hustle and networking and all that. But at Columbia, you're, you're often able to find that. Yeah. What are some of the, uh, the alumni, like companies that have Columbia Business School alumni attached to them? Oh, well, okay. So there's, 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 all the way from like the, you know, things that started in the early 2000s that are now extremely successful. And that, for example, you can think about It Cosmetics, which is sort of Jamie Kern Lima. Uh, I can, you know, she's one of, she's one of the top 50 self-made women uh, in the United States, according to Forbes. Uh, very successful. You can think about Flexport, a flex, you know, flexible transportation and shipping. Um, there's several kind of um, investment firms and hedge funds. Uh, there's Ziggy's if you if you enjoy uh, the the kind of that kind of baby brand, uh, Happy Baby. Um, you know um, what Ziggy's the, the yogurt. Sorry, um, those things are kind of in that consumer space from 20 years ago. Today we have other companies. For example, we have I teach about um, uh, Loss of Motion. Loss of Motion was uh, a Time Magazine Innovation of the Year. Um, about a new way to create dresswear. Uh, Carly BG comes to class and we, we talk about it. Uh, we talk about how she's thinking about the business. Uh, we, and then we have a lot of kind of very new companies that are, you know, that are starting to take out, take, to, to take off. And, and I'm, I'm excited to see where, where they go. Yeah, that's so cool. So your research, you, 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 you talked about your startup cartography project and you've done other research, one of which was focused on, I think it was titled Go West Young Firm, the benefits of startup relocation to Silicon Valley. So that was 2018, if my dates are correct. So 
entrepreneurship, there's been pockets that have been uh, excelling, like Miami is one, you know, I always hold like Boston, New York, those are, they have their weight in the ecosystem, but the Valley's always been the 800 pound gorilla, but then you've got the LA's, the Austin's. So how does it relate to the world of entrepreneurship now? Because everyone, everyone's working remote or a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people are remote. So, so where does it stand now as far as the must to be in, you know, the Silicon Valley versus other ecosystems? So there's, I mean, that's an amazing question. And so, uh, so in that paper, we show there's big benefits of going to Silicon Valley and it depends, right? So there's, there's, few, there's a few things going on. First, um, over the last few years, there was a rising of all boats. And so when you look at has the Valley kind of Silicon Valley lost its dominance, it actually has not, right? It's just like, there's been so much money that other places have shown up on the map, but it was 15 years ago, it represented 60, you know, between 50 and 70% of venture capital. And last year, it still represented between 50 and 70% of venture capital. Wow. And so it's not like, you know, the other places are, are, are kind of showing up and kind of eating up some of the, of the Bay Area kind of cake uh, in that sense so far. And so I think, I think that's, that's something that I'm actually really curious to see how it's going to play out now that you're mentioning, you know, finance, financing is going down and how that shakedown happens. Um, that's, that's, so, so the second thing is, the second thing you mentioned is, well, what about the remote work? Is that making these locational kind of advantages less important, right? I mean, there's, there is sort of, there's a boom in the South that, that is for sure. There's Miami and there's Houston and there's Austin and there's even places like Phoenix have been doing amazingly well. And so that's, that's kind of more a long-term trend in the United States. Um, and and I'm not sure, I'm not sure, you know, how much this is, this is going to be. Of course, some of it has to be true, but I, you know, I, I continue to think that human interaction matters a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and while you can attend the board meeting through Zoom and a few things and have a more distributed team, uh, at the very high end of performance, I think it's, it's going to matter. And, you know, for example, one thing we usually hear in education, education, for example, is one of the most obvious things that people would say are going to be affected by, by online, by online kind of web, Zoom, et cetera, right? Online learning is something people had to do, so you had to get good at it. And, and then, right, you know, when people, when, when, when doing online learning, right, it's, of course, there's a lot of the professor talking into, into the you know, talking to the students. And so it might be education. And what we're seeing is, you know, there's huge cost of online learning. Uh, the students at Columbia, you know, are excited to come back, are excited to be here in the classroom, you know, much rather than kind of learning something remote, et cetera. And so I, that I think to me is like a little bit of a bellwether. And, 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 and I think a lot of it's going to be like that. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think it's going to be a lot more flexible on the other hand. You know, of course, nine to five culture is not there. And you're not going to have to show up, you know. So a little bit of the issue with startups sometimes is people, people so often complain that there's a lot of kind of FaceTime, right? So you have to be around for the whole day, even if you're not doing a lot. And there's a lot of time just like showing up. And so I, hopefully that will reduce to some extent because I think that's, you know, that was not, that was, that was not connected to productivity always. 
Yeah, I've been already noticing kind of a shift in that workplace of, you know, not mandating that everyone needs to be there, but it's sliding closer towards that. And I think it will just, it's going to be a, um, you know, hybrid local, right? Like you're, hybrid you're going local. into the office. The yeah. Yeah. It's like you're in the office two, three days a week. You don't need to be there every day. You know, you have meetings and you go in, you don't have to commute every day, but some of the days you do. So I just think that makes sense. Cause, uh, I, and even some of the companies that are like a B round that I've had on the podcast recently, they're like, no, we, we're in office. We want people yeah. here. We need the collaboration. We need the sales, yeah. especially like sales teams. They need to feed off each other, the energy, the learning. What did they do well in that call? What did they do well? Oh, that's and, fascinating. You know, yeah. So because some people might, might be like, might think it's more in the engineering side, but it goes to show that it's sort of, sort of, it's really interesting what you're, what you're mentioning. I'm, so, uh, I mean, you're right, right? Like, the, the thing, it used to be a little costly for people to be remote and that thankfully has gone away. So I, you know, when I started working, I, you'd have to tell your manager if you were going to be a little late because you were going to go to your son's like assembly or you had to like pick up your daughter at 3 p.m. because that's when school ends. And so things like that, I think the good thing about this is that it, those are becoming, I, I don't think anybody would expect to ask for permission for that now. And I think that's a good right. thing, you know? It's a great thing. Yeah, it, uh, you definitely need that type of balance. And as long as you're getting your work done, why does it matter what time you do it? So that's absolutely right. Now, something else that you did a lot of research around that is a very important topic that uh, it, as it should be. So gender gap in entrepreneurship. Yeah. So this continues to be a, a challenge. So, so what can be done to like, what did your research show? And then did you have any, uh, thoughts on how these stats can eventually be improved. Yeah. So my, my research show, um, no, it was sort of like the gender gap in entrepreneurship is big, right? So for, so 20% of companies are started by women and, you know, worse, rather than a 50, 50 split, which would be the most natural kind of expectation. Uh, but it gets worse when you split the companies based on kind of these kind of growth orientation or venture back. So even if like, 20 to 25% of companies are started by women, only 10% of venture-backed companies and only, you know, 8% of companies with a patent. And, you know, if that, that's a different measure of innovation and things like that. And so it seemed like it got worse kind of as you move kind of towards, towards these kind of more growth-oriented kind of VC-type companies. Um, we've seen a lot of improvement since, since we published that paper. Um, you know, thanks to the Me Too, Me Too movement. So there's been emphasis on this. And I think, you know, especially when you look at, when you look at venture partners, um, there's been a lot of more, you know, there was the Ellen Powell case, et cetera. And there's been a lot more uh, women in, in, in uh, LP positions and, and generally in venture. And there's been sort of a growth of the femtech industry and things like that. I think, I think that, the one uh, thing that continues to be true, and that is that there's there's sort of, and that I, this is an area that I hope um, there's a lot more there's a lot more work to be done, is on the type of companies. And so when you often look at look at these successes, there's sort of for some reason in this kind of something that feels a little bit more female as an industry, right? They might be in like fashion. They might be in you know when people put up like great entrepreneurs do be like, you know, 
Spanx, which is like shapewear or like, you know, and like most successful women entrepreneurs, you know, Kylie Jenner, maybe with like cosmetics. And so, and that is good. You know, there's, those are tough industries, difficult industries, really interesting industries. But, um, but it's a bit striking to me, this divergence, right? Because there's other industries that are, that shouldn't be a stereotypically anything, right? And I mean, you think about, I don't know, like something, I mentioned semiconductors. There's no like gender component to that at all. Uh, but somehow uh, we do see this is work by my colleague, uh, Dana Kanz, who did her PhD here. Now it's a, it's a London Business School. She showed that they actually get discounted in these industries. And so, and so you end up with this kind of trade-off, right? Should I focus on these kind of very kind of, you know, very female kind of type of industry, which would have to be, you know, things like that, you know, rent the runway, which are, you know, really great companies, or do I kind of, or, it, you know, what is that? You know, how does that look like? So that's one issue that still needs a lot of work. Second, the way, um, you know, also Dana shows that the way VCs uh, evaluate companies and the way investors in general evaluate companies it still shows up these biases, right? So she has a very nice paper, which 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 is titled uh, with Tori Higgins, which is titled um, "We Ask Men to Win and Women Not to Lose," uh, or investors ask men to win. And so you know, it turns out that when you do when you actually show the same startup pitch and just change the gender of the kind of founder, you know, this kind of that is presenting it the questions that come up are a little bit different, right? Men are like, well, how, how large is this market? How can you get there? Things that are a little bit more mm-hmm. growth oriented. And with women, it might be a little bit more uh, defensive, right? Like, you know, is this, you know, how sure can you be? Um, you know, what what data do you have to support your assumptions, et cetera? And so it's kind of, um, so so I think, you know, these are by kind of basically the same investors. And so, um, you know, so these are things that I think, um, you know, there, there's a lot of potential in it. And there's actually a lot we can do by simply kind of being cognizant of these kind of implicit biases and trying to make sure that that we don't hold them or think about them differently, et cetera. So I think, yeah, um, is that, does that answer your question? It totally does. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely that bias and that that needs to change. So, I mean, it's just, it's continuing to educate and talk about it and hopefully over time, it continues to improve, which, um, you know, the, the growth of the improvement isn't at the rate that anybody would want, but, um, you know, it does, does appear that we are making some headway. So hopefully we continue in that right direction. So, and by the way, there's something to be said about what we call sometimes in the social sciences homophily, which is people, you know, the, you know, that women GPs are, 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 sorry, women LPs are able to sometimes better assess other women founders and things like that. So this diversity actually does, does make a difference in terms of the whole pipeline. So what are some of the common mistakes that you see entrepreneurs, you know, whether it's, you know, through your research, through the, you know, the, the, the cases that are reviewed at CBS or just, you know, from working with the entrepreneurs on campus, like what are some of the common mistakes that you see entrepreneurs that make, they make over and over again? So, so I, I mean, I really think there's there's two things um, that, at least from my vantage point, are often very very important uh, that I do think entrepreneurs make make these mistakes over and over. The first is um, focus on short term trends, uh, right? It's a bit of a paradox 
because you're trying to predict the future, but you you know, these are 10 year bets, right? These companies. And so, um, you know, you might be focusing on the fact that there's supply chains issues right now, or there's inflation and how does that look like for the average consumer and how does that create a niche or, you know, what's like the, all, you know, that that connected, you know, that stay at home living, all these things are moments are, are, you know, are relatively short moments in time, right? Where if the opportunity is coming because of that, or because something's happening with Bitcoin, et cetera, um, you know, it's going to be a little bit short lived. And so it's going to leave as, as, as quickly as, as it's going to go. And so, for example, if an entrepreneur came right now and told me, well, there's a lot of inflation, so consumers are a lot more price conscious and I want to start a company X, I would worry, right? Because there is inflation, but one day there won't be. And we still have a pretty reasonable expectation of that. And we don't think that's going to be 20 years from now. We think that's going to be like in a year. And so, and so that, 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 you know, where's that advantage coming from? And so maybe you can translate it from there, then it's more stable. So that's like thing, thing number one. Thing number two, um, I think there's different versions of, you know, I think entrepreneurs forget to look for that core that makes a company. Uh, and, and oftentimes, you know, and I do think this is not like soul searching, like, you know, our goal is to happy humans or something, but oftentimes there's a pretty core piece of a company in most cases that, that lives for a long time. And, and I think entrepreneurs, you know, I love some customer discovery. I think it's very important, but you cannot customer discover your way into everything you have to think you have to start with a good hypothesis uh and from that clear hypothesis right then you validate it sure and you learn maybe you adjust a little bit the path in terms of different implementations of the plan but the core hypothesis uh has to be solid and relies oftentimes on some predictions of where things are going and also thinking about your own skills one particular version of these kids is everybody expecting to have network effects in their business Right, it's just like you know, as it grows, it's gonna happen. It so it just feels a little bit fussy, and and sort of you think hard about network effects, then you worry, you know, you worry that you are you creating switching costs? Are you how are you doing adoption? You know, that you should think, for example, is people want to build a platform, but they also want to have paying customers from the get go. If you want to build a platform and the values from the platform, the most important thing you need is a lot of users in the platform because that's what's going to create the value. And then you can charge people, but you might need to do the opposite, right? Subsidize at the beginning and it can be extra work and that kind of thing. And so that is kind of the type of consistency that I'm usually looking for when I'm thinking about companies, you know, a connection, a clear hypothesis and a connection that actually makes sense from the basics of how the businesses work. Yeah, those are two great points. And I was thinking as you were talking about the first one that there's, you know, trends that happen and, I know there'll probably be some dominant, very successful companies for NFTs that support, you know, uh, sports memorabilia and things like that. But that's one sector that I'm just, I, I just, I can't wrap my head around. And I don't know if I'm just starting to get older and I'm just, cause, cause I see these NFT companies come up and like, I know, you know, the board ape yacht club, that's super successful and that's highly sought after, but I see these other similar things like Kevin Rose has a company now that's doing it. And Gary V has one. I'm just like, is there that much 
demand for these things that and they're the amount of capital that they're raising it's just i don't i don't get it but i'm not the investor from Andreessen Horowitz that does. So who am I to say? But uh, that's one that I'm just like, I don't know about that one. Like, I understand there's you know, so many uses for Web3, but that's yeah. one where I'm just like, it's art. No, that's, that's art. super interesting. I mean, we actually do a whole uh, technology forecasting class uh, session on NFT where we use NFTs, right? Because it's like, it's exactly a feeling you are. It's just like the next thing that's going to take over the world or is it just like, you know, totally makes no sense. And, and I, I mean, I think that the basic thing that to me, you know, the way I think, I mean, I think about it a lot in the way Bitcoin has flown. It was, it both grew a lot and has dropped tremendously. And so if you're getting, you know, there's, there's sort of that much uncertainty, if that makes sense. You know, there's like huge risk in, in, in the NFT space right now. Uh, some things that you do see, I think, is that, you know, maybe you, in my take of these, you do feel like, well, I could, I would love, you know, I used to have an album for the World Cup every year, and mm-hmm. I would love to have like a digital version of that if that was like an option. And like, it's like a little yeah, bit more. Yeah, I get that. Like, things like, like that. Tra- uh, it's like they, a trading make- card, a baseball card, and there's only so many of those baseball cards. And like, if I owned, you know, a moment in time from a Super Bowl that was like a classic iconic play that I would totally like to have that as a digital asset that only me and 50 other people own or something like that. Exactly. But then, but then after that, you need very kind of strong assumptions about how many, how much people would want to live in this metaverse, right? Would they, would you want to live online? And, and I mean, you're saying maybe I'm old, but I, and maybe, you know, maybe I am too then, but I, I, I really believe, value these like in-person connections. I think they, I, I, I mean, my take is they're going to continue to be the sustenance of humanity. And so, you know, while, while we could do online things, you know, I'm, we're not, I'm not, I'm not going to do office hours online. You know, I just had a student leave my office and we had a wonderful conversation about, you know, a bunch of things she's thinking about and a company she's thinking about launching. And, it made a huge difference, right? It made a huge difference to do it in person. And, and I think, and so, so I think, you know, it also looks a little bit, you know, well, uh, you know, I, 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 I think it's a richer experience to continue to, to connect in person. So it would be I agree. a little bit unfortunate yeah. if we miss that, if we lose. Yeah, that. I agree a thousand percent. So I know you're not part of the admissions process at Columbia business school, but I am talking to someone that obviously sees a lot of students coming in. Uh, so, so if you had to give advice to, you know, someone on how to, uh, you know, if someone is looking to attend Columbia business school, what's, what's, what's the best way to uh, set yourself up for success? So, so I, 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 I have, yes, I, I think there's a few things here. First, I do want to mention these in terms of entrepreneurship, um, Especially because um, so Columbia, so business school, you should always think about it as a chance to get skills, just like an undergrad, a chance to get skills that, you know, would support you through your career. And so that's, that's important because, you know, if you're going to come incubate a company, that's great. If you think about launching, that's great. If that's a way for you to learn about a lot of things, that's great. But you shouldn't measure, you know, how the success of an MBA works based on you know, the companies that are launched by people exactly at the time they're graduating, right? They'll go, they'll do. And so, and so that's a, that's an important thing to think about. I, you know, I think there's, there's sort of a couple angles to it. Um, first reach out. I, you know, reaching out is just 
fundamental, making that connection. If you are an extremely talented um, entrepreneur or people in technology or anything else, you might get into Colombia, but you might get into even other places. And then uh, Colombia knows that. And, and, so, and sort of there's just ability to make that connection makes a difference. So reach out to who though? Reach out to the professors or reach out to admissions people? No, reach out to admissions. Uh, reach out. Admissions does events. There's you just make sure to show up, figure out where they Got are. It. If you're a, there's some minority groups that that as well that make a difference, right? So I often talk at the Hispanic Business Association where you know we connect that, but there's also others. Uh, you can find alumni in your area or in your network and talk to them. They even often write a letter for you telling that you'd be a great uh, asset at Columbia. And then and then finally, I think. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's it, you know, get, there's sort of like, get the basics right, right? You know what I mean? Like, make sure to do your GMAT, make sure to get a good score, make sure to write your, your letters well, because I think that is, that is quite, quite important as well. At Columbia, I think one thing um, that would make it a success for you, right, if you come here is um, the New York City environment. So, you know, people, we often find here at Columbia, people that are, you know, it's like everybody, it's like a lot of people that are passionate about New York. And so they come, they either want to be in New York or they want to remain in New York. And so it, it makes both people that come here really love this kind of environment, the people then that, that, but then, you know, overarchingly stay here compared to other programs, right? Like, you know, if you go to Wharton, you might stay in Philly, but you might go to many other places. Um and so that makes that makes that kind of very unique character from the from the business school. Got it. So, what are some uh, good book podcast recommendations that you uh, generally give out for entrepreneurship? Well, I'll I'll actually begin with our very own new podcast led by students at Columbia Startup Alley. Nice. We're okay. trying to feature Columbia students uh, and sorry, Columbia companies, Columbia graduates, and see how they went. Um, uh, besides that. Um, I think, you know, big books that I that I usually think about, Crossing the Chasm continues to be a favorite for me after it's been, even though it's been out for a while. Uh, Brad Feld's book on building ecosystems is actually quite, quite you know, I really like it a lot. Um, and, and I actually, you know, from those two, I would, I would encourage um, prediction machines. If you're really into data science, if you're really trying to figure out machine learning in that space, I think that's a, that's a really powerful one by Joshua Gans and Ackerwall and, and, and Goldfarb. And hopefully uh, my own class, Entrepreneurial Strategy, this is this close to getting a book. So look out for that. It's not co-authored by me, but it's co-authored by Gans, Scott and Stern. And, and it's going to be a textbook. And I think it's going to be a really complete approach um, to entrepreneurship. So hopefully um, if, if, you know, uh, when it's out, I'll make sure to send you a link. And hopefully it can be there in, in, in kind of the podcast notes. Very, very cool. Outside of, uh, you know, what you're doing at Columbia Business School, what, what do you like to do for fun? Oh, this is where I embarrass myself. <laughs> Not being a fun person. Uh, I have, I have, um, so I have three kids and they're of different ages. And so I end up sort of really busy with that. Uh, but besides that, I, I've been trying to get into tennis and back into golf. I think, you know, I used to play a lot of golf when I was younger. Um, that is sort of, and I try to go to comedy clubs. 
so I, if I'm really bored, if I am like just um, exhausted, if I need a break, oftentimes I would just go down to the Broadway Comedy Club or or the Laugh House or um, the way, you know, what stand up New York here on the West Side and just to go do whatever 8 p.m. show they have. I'll just, you know, whatever it is. And, and it's often, I highly recommend that you have a good time. You have a lot of fun. And by 10 p.m., you're just like a lot more relieved about whatever was going on. That's great. I love that. Love that. Love that. Well, Jorge, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, all the great stuff that's happening at Columbia Business School, and obviously all the great advice. Thank you very much, Keith. I'm really excited to have been here. And thanks to everybody for listening to me. And um, I look forward to um, continuing, continuing the conversation with you in the future. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.